Hi, dear listener. Zach here. I'm proud of the work we did on Call of Discovery and Keyforge Public Radio, and last year I took my love of podcasts full-time with my company, Rooster High Productions. If you know someone with a business who wants to broadcast their expertise through podcasts and derived social media marketing, send them my way to Zach at RoosterHigh.com. Thank you so much. Welcome to Call of Discovery, the podcast where we invite you to join us on a journey into the crucible for a weekly or fortnightly celebration of all things Keyforge, its community and the excitement of discovery. I'm your host Ed Pocock and today I'm joined by fellow Archon and the architect of the London community, Steve Broder. Steve, welcome to the pod. Thanks for having me. Today we're going to be diving into a topic that's very close to to Steve and myself because we're part of the London community and that is how to build a thriving local community. So we've got lots of insight here coming from Steve today but since this is our first fully fledged episode of Call of Discovery I'll first provide a quick rundown of what you can expect from the podcast. So every two episodes, we'll be introducing a different member of the Keyforge community. This is our first of our two episodes with Steve. And in the first episode with any guest, we'll be learning the story behind their love of Keyforge. And we'll be inviting them to share their unique perspective on the game with the discussion topic that matters to them. So first of all, let's kick things off by getting to know Steve a little bit better. Um... Steve, tell us a bit about how how did you discover Keyforge? Unfortunately, it was a game I didn't plan on getting involved in at all. It was one of those ones where I look in my room and go, I have too many games. I shouldn't pick up. Oh, no, I've got too many decks now. Um, you blinked and it, you blinked and it was done. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's funny how that happens. It was like a case of I'd been playing. I really wanted to get back into card games since a kid where you play, you know, Yu-Gi-Oh, Pokemon, you know, yeah. all these card games in your school. Um, I'd been playing L5R, so Legend of the Five Rings, which is another FFG uh, card game. But I just felt like as much as I loved the artwork in that game and I loved the system, it just wasn't quick enough for me to really want to in- delve in more into because it is a longer card game. Yeah, uh, And as well, coming from other systems, or f- so tabletop games, it was interesting to get into a game where i could just walk into a shop and start playing i didn't have to plan what models i'm going to buy or what booster packs i had to purchase it was oh i want a deck today i'm just going to go get a deck uh, and i can just run into a shop and be like oh, i'm just we're playing there's games going on today i'll just buy a deck and i straight off the bat i'm playing Pick up a deck and go. And that's really the benefit of Keyforge, isn't it? It's that low barrier to entry. Anyone can just pick up a deck and get started. Yeah, it's it saves the hassle and the outside time that you spend focusing on which what combos you want and, and what packs you need to get, uh, what on what single sites you have to go on to, to buy extra to buy extra cards. It's 
in spe- instead of spending so much time planning, you can just sit down and play and you get to spend more time socializing with others who enjoy the game instead of planning and prepping just yeah. so to play one game. <laughs> you can just, you just sit down and play. It's, it's so much swifter. Great. So my understanding with Legend of the Five Rings, which is, as we say, another fantasy flight game, mm. a competitive living card game that they brought out, I think, a couple of years ago. I understand with that there is strong house affiliations. So people will people will play cards from one clan and 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 eschew the other clans. They they won't they won't feel that they belong in that clan. So so Steve, does that carry over to Keyforge for you? If you were if you had to pick a a, a house of the crucible um, and be, belong to that house, which one would it be? Uh, definitely Sanctum, definitely Sanctum, which is then also ties into everything else because I really dislike shadows which has a very annoying counter card to sanctum controversial which is imperial traitor yeah which you know it purges you you look at your opponent's hand and purge or so completely get rid of one of their sanctum cards yeah so it's yeah i'm definitely on board with sanctum so Shadows beware. Shadows, yeah, shadows beware. beware. So you must be a little bit sad. For for our listeners that, that, that aren't aware and that have maybe been hiding under a rock, uh, the third set of Keyforge Worlds Collide has recently been announced. And uh, in that set, we have two new houses coming in. But sadly, two older houses also have to rotate out. And one of those two is Sanctum. How do you feel about that, Steve? Bit frustrated. Because you know, I spend a lot of the time when I'm looking at decks that I have or ones yeah. that I want to potentially purchase. It's most of the time I want a Sanctum lineup in it just to for board pressure, you know, protection, uh, some amber control, stuff like that. Uh, so not having them in the next set is going to make it interesting, especially with certain houses being left in. So houses like Shadow, Untamed, if with them still being in the the lineup, it's going to be interesting to see how Amber Control is managed uh, with the two new houses. Yeah, so, and, and as ever with Keyforge, it's all about discovery and out with the old, in with the new. It looks like these two houses are going to be presenting us with many many different ways to interact with the game yeah um so so that so that's exciting what are you most looking forward to from from the new set from worlds collide of what we've seen so far uh one of the new cards i'm really looking forward to is with the new dinosaur cards coming out so the saurians uh it's called coliseum and i'm really interested in finding ways to maximize its use so it's going to be an interesting card. So it's uh, every time an enemy creature is destroyed yep. in a fight, you put a glory counter on Colosseum. Once you get to six once or more, you uh, in your turn, you can Omni uh, Colosseum. So that means use it in any of your three houses to yep. phase and forge at the current cost. Wow. So if you can forge at the beginning of your turn, gain enough amber and you've already got six glory counters... You can forge a second key. So we have a new key cheat. Yeah. Um, these cards for, for our newer player listeners are key cheats. And uh, it sounds like this one interacts slightly differently to the existing key cheats we've got, such as yeah, the key charge, key abduction. This this one, it, it sounds like has some interesting uh, synergies that might be board dependent. 
Yeah, especially with the uh, Age of Ascension, where there was what's called repaint. Yeah, which is causing more fight and less reaping, which was a big problem in the first set where you could just reap so much that your opponent can't keep up with how much amber you you generate risking two players playing solitaire yeah basically yes aoa age of ascension seem to encourage that player interaction a little bit more by by uh, making it harder for for people to reap either by stunning creatures or by uh impacting them in some way i think um or by making creature sacrifice itself to reap yeah um so so lots lots of things there do you think the Colosseum is an overpowered card, or do you think that it is going to be a card that adds depth to some of the existing options in the game? Well, it's interesting because a lot of London players don't give it a lot of credit. Yeah, but I've kind of a little bit. I have a bit of a theory that there are some of the cards, especially with new keywords like enrage. Mm-hmm are going to make that card even more powerful. So Enrage is the new uh, one of the new keywords, which means it has to fight in its turn. So if you've got loads of cards that force your opponent to fight, and you've got potentially a lot of hazardous uh, creatures, which means that when they fight, when they've been fought, they actually deal an additional set of damage before the fight even happens. You could build up a potential lot of glory counters on Colosseum, Mm that it makes it very frustrating for your opponent to have to deal with. Um, so, so theoretically, you could have a situation where you have a, uh, a Brobnar, which I believe is, is quite heavy on the Enrage lineup and, and Sarian lineup, and that's the dinosaurs of which the Colosseum is part. Um, and you could be seeing a lot of, a lot of enforced fighting from that, hmm. which could then lead to lots and lots and lots of glory counters being being placed up pretty quickly. Um, again, this this might add value in the future to some of those artifact hate decks. Uh, things with cards like Poltergeist that allows you to destroy your opponent's artifact. Um, and I believe you get an Amber Pip for it as well, yeah. uh, which is a, a hugely valuable card in the current meta. But with if we see in an influx of, of very powerful artifacts in Worlds Collide, then that could be even better. I mean, one combo that you would have to worry about is including Nexus. Yeah. With your smaller creatures, you could use them to fight, build up your opponent's glory counters, and then use Nexus to reap, use your opponent's Colosseum, and then forge your own key at six uh, at the current cost, which then is... But it's a double-edged, so it's a double-edged sword compared to other key cheats. And for our newer listeners, uh, can you explain Nexus? Uh, so Nexus is a power-free shadow creature that when they reap, you are given the ability to use one of your opponent's artifacts. Okay. Uh, if it's passive, then it, nothing happens. So a passive is just a blank, uh, small font text box. Uh, but if it has an action or an omni ability on the card, you get to use it, exhaust the card, which means your opponent can't use it in their turn, um, and you get to, I guess, reap the ability, the 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 glory that comes from it. Uh, so there's lots of artifacts that you would want to use with Nexus, and with stuff like Colosseum coming out and potentially some of the other ones, it just makes 
makes it a more more powerful card than it was before. It's a bit of a risk reward scenario for your opponent then, particularly if they see that in in your deck, mm. they're going to be constantly mindful of that, and they're going to be thinking when when's this card coming out? Uh, because you could essentially cheat your opponent out of a key than when your opponent's using Colosseum. So moving on a bit from Worlds Collide for now, Steve, Keyforge is all about stories. It's all about those memorable moments that make a game what it is. So if you had to pick one memorable moment playing Keyforge, what would that be? Uh, I think the one that is with me the most at the moment was playing against another London player. Um, looking at their deck list, being really like not impressed yeah. uh quite surprised because it had sanctum with sigil of the brotherhood which is a card that if you which is an artifact that allows you to use your sanctum creatures outside of a sanctum turn um but having zero sanctum creatures in the deck which was quite interesting but interesting. the the story itself is with my deck that we'll talk about later i had the setup for a one turn win yeah and they had one turn win. Is a, yeah, so it was basically a one turn win. And I set it all up. I was like, "Cool, this is great." And you know, I've got this in the bag. Uh, and then they wild wormhold, which is allows you to play the top card of your deck into Spirit's Way, which destroys all power free and higher creatures and completely wow. wipe the board. And wow. their only reaction was, "Oh, I didn't get to use my own creatures," not realizing that. If that hadn't happened, it was that was the end of the game uh, for them, and it was just such a perfect draw. Yes, it, there's no like there wouldn't there wasn't another card in that deck that could have helped, and it was just the perfect timing, perfect draw, kind of like old school Yu-Gi-Oh, where you just yeah. heart the cards kind yeah. of thing, where that one <laughs> draw is the perfect draw, and it was just like he was like he was like, well, let's just try it, and then yeah. suddenly I was like. Looking at my hand going, I can't do anything right now because it was just so, it, 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 I'm not superstitious a lot, but it was like, if there was like, like a, like a clover in his pocket, just like giving him all the luck. Um, <laughs> and sometimes it does feel like that with Wild yeah. Wormhole, doesn't it? Because that really is the ultimate gamble card in Keyforge. I've seen um, a lot of problems with that card. Well, I, I had a I had an incident a few weeks ago where I was playing playing a deck with Wild Wormhole in it, and um, it also had a copy of Keyhammer in it. And for for our listeners, Keyhammer is a dis uh, dis action ability, and it unforges your opponent's key if a key was forged on their last turn, and it gives them six amber. So, what happens if you play Keyhammer and your opponent hasn't forged a key on their last turn? is you simply and very kindly gift them six amber. Lovely for your opponent, but not ideal for yourself. And um, there's not really an easy way of coming back from that, regardless of how powerful the deck you're playing is. So so I'd only just kicked off this deck, so my chances of drawing this key hammer were really low. But I ended up playing Wild Wormhole into Key Hammer twice in a row, and it did feel like the odds were stacked against me. Maybe yeah. I should have a clover in my pocket slightly more often. Uh, the, the way around that is you just you have to be like, right, I know where that card is, but then it kind of devalues Wild Wormhole and making it... So before we dive into our, our focus topic... Um, we're going to ask a bit of a fun question. Steve, which creature of the Crucible, if you could choose 
any creature of the Crucible at all, any creature in the world of Keyforge, which one would you choose to have on your side in a fight? Um, I feel like I could say Ganga Chieftain, because then, you know, everyone would think twins, uh, which is like some of the jokes that people make. But I think the easiest one would be to have Bulwark. Yeah. So Bulwark is uh, the, a four power, two armor creature who gives you armor as well if you're next to him. Um, and is a sanctum creature. And it's a sanctum uh, creature. If, if our listeners are spotting the, the trend here in, in uh, Steve's allegiances. Um, so, yeah, I always feel like he's he'd be that card who always yeah. had your back. Uh, I mean, the artwork is great uh, with the, the way the, that his shield covers pretty much most of the screen. Absolutely. For our listeners, it is, it is a, a depiction of a sanctum knight with a, a huge shield, must be uh, about the same size as the knight itself. And um, he's crashing the shield into, uh, into the ground and lightning appears to be erupting from the ground. So, um, so I, I, think, I think you're probably, probably onto a good thing having him on your side in a fight because he's not going to turn around and, and do you any damage and uh, he's probably going to see even the, uh, the most wary of Brobnar giants off. So uh, now we now we head into our main topic, and we're going to be focusing a bit on the community. Uh, yeah, this is this is something that that has been present on on the Keyforge Facebook group over the last couple of weeks. Unfortunately, we've been seeing some messages from from people in different communities across the world saying they're concerned. Maybe they're the only ones turning up to events. They're concerned about the the health of the game as a result of that, and. I think that ultimately this conversation is going to address that head on um, as a number of people have in response to those things on, on, on the community groups. Um, and I think Steve is a good person to talk to here because uh, without, without uh, the community support in London, I don't think we'd have the, the, the thriving and sustainable community that we do have currently. So I'm keen to put a positive spin on this because... I certainly don't think the game is dying. Not at we, all. We just had we just had figures coming out saying that Keyforge is now the third biggest trading card game in the world. It has displaced Yu-Gi-Oh. It is third behind Pokemon and Magic. That is huge. This is the only game where you can see deck registrations, the number of decks that are actually being registered, and they're solid. We're not seeing a significant drop in the number of decks being registered. Support from organized play is improving. The uh, FFG, that is Fantasy Flight Games, seem to be really listening to us, listening to the community on the concerns we have on what we want to see from the game. And I think there is, there's an opportunity for Keyforge not just to retain its position, but also to consolidate its position here and challenge Pokemon in the second, second place. Because ultimately this game has something that those others don't. It has a very, very low barrier to entry. People can just pick up a deck and they can play it. So I'd say two of every three games being played aren't being played in your local game store. Maybe they're not even being registered on the app. They are being played by people at the kitchen table that just enjoy games. And um, I think this, this can surpass even, even our kind of highest possible estimations of, of what this game is capable of achieving. So... In summary, 
the onus is not just on organised play to, to build something for the game, because that, that accounts for a very small part of the community playing the game. It's not just on the local game stores to provide the opportunities for people, but actually the greatest role is for us, the community, to build the community, to put those op- opportunities for people to play in place, um, no matter what their, what their focus is, whether they're the most casual players or whether they're keen to get involved with that local game scene. So I guess now we turn to Steve. And how did you find yourself in, in essentially this de facto coordination role for the game in, in one of the biggest cities in the world? Um, well, when I started, I was looking at game stores around London and, and trying to figure out where the best place to start off was with. started talking to a couple of people and they, someone was suggesting, you know, we make a London page. And I was never not, not done any community stuff like that before. A little bit hesitant. But challenge is a challenge, and so I built the London page. Um, weirdly enough, though, I started I started building it, and the person who suggested it said they'd help, and then, you know, I built it, and then suddenly they're not to be around. They dropped is, off the radar. They had, the, you know, they had their own kind of things to, <laughs> oh, no. to start doing, and so I was like, all right, well, I could either just drop it and give it up, or yeah. let's see how far it goes. And, then, you know, trying to, coming from quite like a sporting background, Anyway, it was kind of like, well, you know, like you slap your cheeks and you go, right, let's see where we can go. And so you're like, you, you just start picking up, you know, any little tips you can from other communities. So you start yep. joining other pages, seeing what they're doing, what their moderators are doing. And then suddenly, you know, it started to, it started with just me going into a shop, telling the, going onto the shops page and telling them I'm going to be there at this time. Uh, just going in there and there was many times where I'm sitting in a shop by myself for about an hour all my Keyforge stuff out doing you know there'd be times where I'd just be like okay I've sat here for there's no one else coming alright okay I've sat here for long I've done long enough but not losing any motivation in doing that then there'd be other times where I'd go in I've got all my Keyforge stuff out and suddenly players are asking what is that game they start getting interested so then they go off and buy a couple decks so and generally when that happens, it seems to me that players don't stop playing. Yeah. Um, it seems to be quite sticky, particularly if they're players from other trading card games who maybe can't devote the amount of time that they would want to with those. Keyforge is much more friendly to the more casual player. You don't have to sit down for ages planning the you know the perfect combo uh, and what cards you need to go and find. Mm. It's it's just, well, that's the deck you've got. Just use it. Um and you can stop playing from the get-go. And, and for our listeners, I think it's it's important that we, we explain a bit about the London scene here because from the outside looking in, it looks to be one of the biggest cities in the world. There must be a huge community here and there must be a, a huge wealth of game stores for people to play in. And that's simply not the case in London because it is one of the most expensive cities in the world as well, yep. uh, sadly for us living in it. And... Um, it makes it very difficult for game stores because the rents are so high, their margins are so low. So they have to go with the safe bets. And those safe bets are quite often those traditional games. So it, it took us time, I think, to 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 uh, convince them to... To, uh, to, to invest time and money. And... ...on the register. Yeah. Uh, I know that's, that's true for a couple shops who are quite thankful now that they've they've committed... So I know, for example, there's about three shops 
in London who are now, you know, they love the game. They, you know, they might not have time to play it themselves, as you know, because a lot of people who work in these stores want to be playing it themselves. Um, but they see the community. They realize that the time and the money they're investing into it, and I guess their own image. Because when you're investing in a game, you know you, the store is technically part of the image. Um, so anything that was to go wrong with the game, the store would then suddenly lose a little bit of face. But they're they're realizing how much the community is thankful, and they'll come down and you know invest their their, their own time and money into the store as well. So it's a it's it's um, it's a two way thing. Yeah, it's it definitely a two way thing. thing. And and for 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 others listening into this, different things work for different communities. But for our community, it seems that the the Facebook group that you've put together, Steve, has really been the heart of our community and been a way to coordinate everyone in the right possible way. And I think for our listeners, it would be great to explore a bit about, you know, how how you the tips you would have for people to use a social network to foster the community and essentially act as a notice board for the events that are going on. Yeah, I definitely think a lot of people who are saying that the game is dying are people who are only looking at maybe the only the the, the global Keyforge page. They're not people who have looked or they have looked uh, for their local one. There isn't one, so they go, oh, okay, there's no game here. Whereas actually if they you know make make one... Uh, I mean, when I made it back in November, I would think I didn't think we'd have more than fifty, and now we're over two hundred players in London. So, if there isn't one, build it yourself. Um, don't feel like it, people won't join. Just build a build a page. Uh, find out when stores have time slots. So, if you're you know your local two or three shops start setting up dates and being like right we would like one set of tables uh maybe every wednesday every thursday well you know uh if people don't come don't get disheartened because you're starting something uh, people aren't going to be invested in something that only includes one or two players but once you start getting those one or two players suddenly you're then under five players, then you're on 10 players. And suddenly, you know, you're like us where we, we have regular 10 plus chain bounds. That's only just chain bound tournaments, yeah. which is a casual tournament. It's not even very serious. If we're getting plus 10 plus 10, 16 plus players at a chain bound, then it means that there are people in the community who are going to keep coming down. And that's what you need to aim for is go, right, well, we just need four. Mm. That's the minimum you need for a chain bound. Talk to your local game stores and be like, it's free to set up with Gem. Get them the 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 store to sign up, to log in, book a chain bound day. There's no problems if the day doesn't even get done. So if you if the store books it, there's no like booking fee. There's no oh you didn't run an event, so we're going to charge you. So the store itself it's for it's for it's free. Um, they can run one a week. Sit down and say, right, I want to run a chain bound. Talk, get to know the people at the store. Okay, so you run your chain bound, you only get three players. Okay, but you try to run it uh, as best you can. You get free, put it on the put it on social media. You know, go on Facebook, go on, you know, build an Instagram for your local yeah. community. If there's pe- pictures and f- 
proof of people turning up, more people will turn up. Yeah. Um, but it's all about someone taking that lunge and yeah. building everything that you need to. Mm. Uh, and I would say that's what one of the problems is when I've seen posts about, oh, the community is dying. It's not that it's dying. It's that no one has taken that step. And if they have, they've given up very quickly yeah. because they haven't seen immediate effects, which is kind of the problem at the mo in modern day is that if something isn't immediate, it's not good. And actually, if it's not immediate, it's because maybe one or two things are missing. If you build it, they will come. Yeah. And one of the things that you've, you've done really well, I think, Steve, is having a weekly digest of all the events going on on Facebook every week. So we have... Uh, what's happening this Monday, what's happening this Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, the whole of the week where, where events are being hosted. And that just enables you, uh, the community, the players to look at what's going on this week and go, oh, oh, that's happening there this week. I didn't know that. Or maybe I haven't been there before, but I'll try it. Yeah, like it's, it's, it's one of the things as well that's evolved is writing down more information. Yeah. So when I used to do it, it would only be, you know, we'd only get max eight players but it was very vague and those players would only already knew about it. But the more in depth I've, I've talked about what, like where it is nearest train station, simple, something simple as that, right? Where the nearest train station is, people are more likely to go, Oh, actually I can get there. I don't know where the shop is, but I can get to that trip, that station. Or I can get off at that bus stop. We have a good example here. We have a, a shop in, in South London. Um, it's a board game cafe, which is actually seems to be quite an accessible way of bringing in different members of the com community from maybe the more casual players as well that traditionally wouldn't have played some of those trading card games. They've done very well in fostering a community there and a good spirit around the game. Um, but people see it as quite a long way away unless you say, actually, guys, this is quite easy to get to and, and maybe maybe a misperception on your part. And um, that's that's gone really well for them and they're running running events every other week. So the way I see it is we've got we've now got ten plus players at Chainbounds and we've got Chainbounds running five or six times a week. Yeah. Um and the the community has really reached that point now of sustainability. So you've spoken a bit about working with local game stores to educate them around Keyforge and provide them with that reliable support from the community base to help them to run events. Um what about new players? Um because one of the most important skills that I see that the community needs to have is how to teach new players in an effective and engaging way. So what, what would your advice be to, to similar uh, community architects across the world on, on how to really engage new players in, in, an in a way that helps them, them bring, brings them into the fold? The, the first thing is, is that you have to obviously be friendly, be social, you, which is, is, is a problem quite a bit in most gaming communities anyway because, you know, we're all from different walks of life. It's hard to always be able to associate with everybody. Um, but, the, but setting up a kind of very friendly, approachable manner is obviously your, your most important thing. Being able to, you know, just simply feeling comfortable shaking someone's hand. Uh, but then actually getting to teach someone the hard part is being able to relax and slow yourself down yeah because you know the game so because you know the game you will just play a card and say the name of the card and then just resolve all of its effects 
actually turning around to your opponent and saying, well, this is the name. Then I play from the top of the card down. So I get an amber if the card has an amber on it. Then I explain to then you explain to your opponent, what does this card do? Because if they don't know, you can just go, all right, play this card next and play this card next. But actually, you know, playing with your deck and explaining, all right, this card has this effect and it actually does really well if this card is on the board. You know? um, and one thing that a lot of players have noticed uh, when they play me and it was just a habit from teaching new players is I play upside down. You and I both. Yeah, uh, it's, it seems to be a London thing that's starting to happen more and more with players. Um, but playing upside down so your opponent can read their cards and yours just you know simply such a it's such a small small thing having your uh, artifacts upside down you know what it does you you're the you're not the new player learning but your new the new player you're teaching literally just looks up they're not having to keep reaching over to grab the cards and find out what it does they don't need to keep feeling embarrassed asking questions it's read they can they, it's right in front of them they can read it uh, and and that for was... you as well i feel when i play upside down as i invariably do um, I feel that I get a better understanding of the cards I'm playing. Yeah. So when they're in my hand, I think, oh, when they're out on the pitch, they're going to be upside down. So it's better for me to know what they're doing now when they're in my hand, and then I play them. You you think a lot more about the cards that you're playing, and it allows you to focus a lot more on what your opponent's doing than what's what's out on the pitch on your side. Yeah. Um it gets a lot of weird remarks. I mean, when we went to the Birmingham Vault Tour, I think out of all six players that I played on the Saturday, all six were like really confused at why I was playing upside down. And I was like, I just don't worry. I, I, I know them. Don't worry about it. And it helped. To, they actually, after each game, I played a couple of new people and they were like, oh my God, thank you, know, thank you for playing upside down. Um, and we're and really engaging actually afterwards, which um, I feel like, because of the way I was with players, you know, they, some of them were were we've been playing since the beginning, but every single out of all six, every single one was really friendly afterwards and really sociable, and they were like actually didn't mind if they lost or won, or and it was nothing like that. Uh, so I had a bit I had, by playing like that and always being in that mode of I'm not playing to win, I want to have fun, and I'm going to make sure that you also learn and have fun the older players still appreciate it. So it's not just it's not yeah. just going to benefit new players coming into the game. It's also going to create that kind of hospitality and that spirit within the game itself. And Keep Orchard at its heart is a friendly game. Yeah. And um, my feeling is it should remain so. So I guess the, 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 the summary of that tale is make things as approachable as possible for new players and 100%. really welcome them in. Uh, I had a bit of an incident... Um, a few few months ago where a new player had come into the store and they had a bit of a rabbit in the headlights look you know first time they'd ever done anything like this which takes a lot of courage to come into a local gaming store not usually your most friendly environment um and and start playing a game that they hadn't played before the first thing one of the established players does is 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 come over to to this new player which is great You've got to engage new players and and talking to them and learning a little bit about them puts them at ease. But the first thing he said to this new player was, have you heard about the Archimedes errata and what do you think about it? And you need to know it before you play, which 
then takes the barrier to entry that is implicit in Keyforge as being very low and rackets it up really high and says to this new player, you don't belong here unless you know the intricacies of different rules interactions, which certainly is not the case with Keyforge. Yeah, not at all. Uh, um, there's times where I've noticed myself or other players getting a little ahead of ourselves and we start talking about, oh, the new thing from Worlds Collide. And we had, we've got a new player in the community and he's just looking and just blinking. He wants to engage, but he has no idea because he's only just learning the new Age of Ascension rules. So giving people space to learn, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think to, towards that, there's, there's no one type of Keyforge player either. So, so Steve, you've done a lot around the organised play scene. I actually run a monthly event in a pub with a bunch of people that wouldn't traditionally spend time in local game stores. So one of the great things about Keyforge is it's accessible to all these different types of audiences. And um, realising those sometimes, I suppose, for your, your local communities to the listener, is running events for different segments of the community. Um, these are guys that wouldn't necessarily go to a local game store and play a chain bound. Maybe they would just feel less comfortable doing so, but they feel comfortable in this casual, fr- friendly environment. Um, it's dubbed Casual Forge, which uh, which helps with that regard. Um, but we have lots of different types of Keyforge players. And if you are a Keyforge player that likes to sit in a pub and play a few casual games, then set something up on Meetup or something similar to that. Uh, not all, not the whole community has to be focused around around that chainbound scene. No, I totally agree. Um, just simply making it accessible um, and acknowledging that not every one player that you're getting is going to be the exact same. They're not all, even if you are at chainbound or casual, not everyone is there is going to be playing the exact same. Not everyone there is going to be there for the same reasons. And if uh, if you are trying to build this community make them feel like it is a community uh and not just oh you're here to play keyforge cool great we're gonna play because you suddenly take away the 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 spirit of it really yeah and i suppose if we take a an ip like like marvel for example that's something that is now considered very very mainstream and is liked and enjoyed by a huge diverse array of people. Sadly, trading card games traditionally haven't been quite so diverse. But because of the barrier of entry and the time in which it's come out, Keyforge has an opportunity to be a very, very diverse game, appealing to all sorts of different people from different backgrounds who might not have traditionally enjoyed that kind of thing. And running things in an environment that they're comfortable with enables enables the game to realize its potential really yeah i agree definitely agree so one more question for you steve before before we before we head out you are also the de facto coordinator for the london urchins team urchin yeah this is a london-based organized play group um and we've heard a lot on the organized play scene this year from team sas and team Reapout. But we haven't heard much yet from Team Urchin. So what is what is on the horizon for the Urchins? Are, are we going to be seeing next year in the Vault Tour season Urchins competing for those top prizes at the top of the Vault Tour leaderboard? Yeah, because this has been a whole different experience as well. Because 
I when I when you when I play when I even if I go chain bound, I will mess around. And and to anyone like listening, that doesn't mean I just like get up and walk. I mean like when I play, I will do combos that I probably shouldn't because they're gonna hurt me. Or but because I want people old and new old, to to enjoy themselves and have a laugh even at a tournament, I'll kind of mess around a bit. And I don't really mind losing. But with urchins, it's a whole different thing because we are looking to play competitively. So it is a bit of a new experience for me to go from, oh, I'm just going to have fun. I'm going to see what you know what happens and make sure everyone has fun to actually I need to build a team yeah. of people who are good, which is, is, is always upsetting um, when you look at it because ideally I would want all 200 plus players in London to want to be urchins and to be, yeah. to be allowed in. But with this whole idea that we, me and uh, another player are building, it comes to the point where it's like, wait, firstly we need to maybe pick 10 players, 10 people who are going to take it serious, who I can delegate jobs to, to, to want, to reach leaderboards they what they're going to spend the time and invest their own time wanting to to rack up the wins and get noticed um but some of the other reasons we've done it as well is so that it gets more interest because we've done a lot of targeting in london for casual and fun players uh but one of the you were saying earlier about types of players one of the kind of types of players we lost early into the game were the more serious players who wanted to come across from you know magic the gathering and everything and they wanted to come across but they just couldn't see the competitive side of the game and explaining it at the time where we hadn't even had a vault tour yet it was hard to do and it was hard to change their minds and even if i would you know beat them three nil you know we'd keep playing games and they still couldn't win or something they still couldn't see how buying one deck would be considered you know a competitive game and with the you know the three other teams that are out there that that are you know unfortunately not in UK with urchins being now the UK pretty much team it's hopefully going to bring in the side of the community i'm not used to bringing in urchins plan is is to be able to create the other side of the community yeah. that we haven't yet yeah. hit uh, to help kind of stores feel you know more encouraged but to also you know make make it so that you know we go to vault tours or we go to you know world championships or primes that people want to play us that people want to go oh actually that's i've not I've, i played you know they go home they you know let's say you know you go to the world's championship and you're like oh i went oh, i played i beat one of the urchins and you actually feel yeah kind of grat gratified that you know you uh, grat uh, satisfied that you built you beat someone who's a, a known team and it just opens up how much the game has to offer yes in such For a different people yeah absolutely so it's but it is it is a unfortunate process of sitting down going i've got 200 players i can only pick maybe 10 yeah and then you know how do i explain to the others you know it's it's a process of well we, it's the slow start i can't rush it because no if i pick 50 players maybe only four, four, maybe 40 of those players don't really invest time and it slows yeah. down the image 
Um, and there needs to be a, a, a clear a clear benchmarking criteria for people. And unfortunately, with a game like Keyforge, you know that that's possible. But it sounds like this really encapsulates something that has has been right across our discussion, which is things take time to build. And yes, it's super rewarding when they're done. Um, like we've got the community now working in London, but if it wasn't for all the hard work and maybe some some days where Steve was sat on his own in a game store yeah. and no one came, um, then we wouldn't be where we are now. So if you're sitting in a city where you're thinking, oh God, what's happened to the community? I'd like to see a community. Well, hopefully we've given you some 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 ways in which you can start thinking about building that community and um you've then got the solidarity of communities in different areas to support you through that process thanks to steve for today um we've got next week to look forward to and keyforge at its heart is a unique deck game so whether it be for an eclectic combo an exciting strategy or just a really great or funny name Everyone has a deck that feels truly unique to them. You can join us next week and we'll be having our first deck discovery episode. Steve's going to share his most unique deck with us. So Steve, any hints to the community about what they can expect from, from your most unique deck? Well, the, the, the two giveaways is that it definitely has Sanctum. I mean, that's probably not a surprise to yeah, anyone yeah. after after today's and conversation. And it definitely may have a couple of uh, bulwarks in there, <laughs> just to uh, you know, just to keep teammates. the theme going. Yeah, keep the theme going. <laughs> oh. So many thanks again to Steve, and yeah, this is our first episode. So please let us know what you'd like to see more of or less of in future episodes. We're really keen to know. Let us know how you're growing the community in your local area, the challenges you're facing. If you've got a question to Steve, I'm sure he'll be super happy to answer it. If you liked what you heard today, you can subscribe to us on your regular podcast app. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, or you can email us at discoverkeyforge at gmail.com. Most importantly, though, if you think a friend would enjoy this podcast, please help them to discover it.